0: You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. Connect with us online at redemptioncalgarysouth.com. And so I ask you to grab your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Timothy. And uh, we're going to be cresting into chapter 6 here today, the last chapter. Um, You should have a natural crease in your Bible uh, now for the book of 1 Timothy. We've been here uh, since the start of the fall. And we're going to be looking at the first two verses here. And uh, as we have been walking through the book of 1 Timothy, we we as a church have been seeking the Lord uh, to build us into a healthy church. And as we look at this book, we see that this is God's master plan uh, given to us for what it means to be a healthy church. And we've been learning a lot of things Uh, throughout our time together uh, about uh, the the, the spiritual building of God's people, the household of God, right? The pillar and buttress of the truth. And so as we're here in chapter 6, as we begin again, we're going to see a a repetition of some themes we've already been studying in this book. Uh, We're going to be turning again to the the theme of honor, honor and respect uh, being at the center of God's master plan, for a healthy church. So as the church in Ephesus had a, had all of her specific challenges and issues that 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 young Timothy had to deal with when it came to relationships and roles within the church, the answer was honor. The answer was respect, right? When we had the issue of, of uh, the widow ministry, the challenges with the widow ministry, we, we saw that the that the answer was honor when it came to installing the right eldership in in light of false teachers, we discovered that honor, again, was the answer. And now when it comes again to the challenge that is facing the church at that time, the challenge of how slaves were to relate to their masters, again, we see that the biblically healthy answer is honor. Honor is is a big deal to God. Honor is a big deal when it comes to being and becoming a healthy church. And brothers and sisters, how we honor one another, how we live out such honor in the church and in the world speaks volumes to the truth of the gospel. Because how you live out your honor is either going to attract to or detract from the gospel. And specifically, when it comes to honoring those in authority over your life. So as the gospel doesn't obliterate roles of, and respect in the church, and even in society, there was confusion in Ephesus at that time about how these born-again slaves, born-again servants, were to relate to their masters. So as the gospel brings freedom from spiritual bondage, there was a tension with how Christian slaves were to view their earthly bondage. What were they to do in light of their new life in Jesus Christ? How were they to approach their masters who owned them? Were they free to reject them and and disrespect them? What if he was a heavy-handed taskmaster? Or or what if this? What if if his master was a Christian? What do you do then? So this was confusing within the church. Now as the issue of widows... That we've already studied seemed initially irrelevant to our church's context. So much more does the issue of slavery seem to be irrelevant to us as well in our context. But we're going to turn to God's word. We're going to look at the context, and we're going to apply uh, these principles that we're going to see. But I'm going to read from First Timothy chapter six, verses one to two first, and then we'll pray. First Timothy chapter six, verses one to two. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Let's pray. Lord, we, we come before you. We humble ourselves before you, and we can only humble ourselves by your spirit. And Lord, we approach your text, we approach your text, uh, we, we approach your text uh, in, in rightful, reverent fear of who you are. And as we approach the authority of what you have, we know that your word is always good. It always goes forth and does the work that you deem for it to do, and that all of it is breathed out by, by you and is profitable for us, right? to equip us, to grow us and to make us into healthy disciples for a healthy church. And so we ask as we approach this text today, as we approach the topic of masters and slaves and honor, uh, that you would use this in our life, that it is applicable, that there are principles here that we can apply to our everyday life for your glory and for the gospel, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the issue of slavery may seem to be irrelevant to us, Uh, slavery uh, was an issue that uh, or is an issue for us that uh, for for a, a long time has been dealt with in our western society it's not something in our current context here in the western world yes there are repercussions for the past and and there are ongoing conversations that are still necessary and good for healing but the fact is that slavery isn't a part of our Western society anymore. We don't have people showing up to church on Sundays with their families in tow and their bond servants along with them. All right, slavery is illegal, and it should be. It's horrific. It should be a horrific thought in our minds. But yet we see here in 1 Timothy and many other places in the Bible where, where slavery was happening. We look all the way back to Genesis 17 and we see Slavery happening as far back as then as well. Slavery was a part of the social norm and the construct of society. Where even Christian slaves were being taught in the context of Ephesus here by Paul to honor their masters. Where even Christian slaves are being owned by Christian masters, believing masters. And so the questions that should be arising is what what is going on here? And how are we to understand this? Is this really what we think it is, or is it something else? And then secondly, what do we do with it, and how does it apply? And so, as we always need help, we need the Holy Spirit to be guiding us through this. Friends, honor, like I said, is a big deal to God. It's a big deal to becoming a healthy church. How you live out your honor will either attract to or detract from the gospel. Even as First Timothy reveals... You know, when it comes to the reality of slaves and masters, as Paul is instructing here, Christian slaves, as we just read, are to honor their masters. Now we're going to focus on the topic of slavery and and masters here. Again, this is not something within our current context, but we have to know why it was in their context in order for us to know how to apply this to ourselves now. So we first have to know what it meant for them then, which means we have to roll up our sleeves, right? we got to do the work. we gotta, we got to understand the context. we got to practice our hermeneutics. We have to see what is going on here with slavery in the Ephesian church. What's it about? What is happening? Is slavery back then the same or different than we normally think of today? I mean, let me ask you, what's the first thing you think of when you think of slavery? For the most part... To be honest, to be fair, we, we, we normally think of the history of the African-American slave trade and the Americas during the colonial area. Right? This is the most recent context that, that, that we can get a hold of in our minds. And although there are some similarities, there are, there are dissimilarities to take note of. You see, slavery in Ephesus, and really... Throughout the whole Roman Empire at that time was a widespread practice and institution. It was a part of the culture. In fact, slavery uh, uh, was, was so prominent within the Roman Empire that, that one in two people were, were subject to some kind of slavery or servanthood. It's actually estimated that at that time, there were over 60 million slaves within the Roman Empire. It was the norm of culture. And it would have been a part of the church culture back then as well. Now, slavery in these times would have had its injustices, for sure. And slavery would have had a, a dark side, for sure. But slavery within the first century Roman Empire was, was far less fueled by racism and oppression, and it was more fueled by economics and social welfare. In fact, the practice of slavery was more of an accepted institution of labor. It would be akin to more of a, an indentured servanthood than what we normally think of when it comes to slavery. right? Although there was hard slavery that was reserved for cri- criminals, they would have to go and, and work in the mines and they would, they would row the ships. Uh, the normal practice, the widespread practice of slavery in that society uh, bondservants, uh, was that it was, a, it was the labor force. It was a part of the household. It was a part of the, the society. The, uh, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says, in Greco-Roman households, slaved, slaves served not only as cooks and cleaners and personal attendants, but also as tutors of persons of all ages, physicians, nurses, close companions, and managers of the household. In the business world, slaves were not only janitors and delivery boys, they were managers of estates, shops, and ships, as well as salesmen and contracting agents. In the civil service, slaves were not only used in street paving and sewer cleaning gangs, but also as administrators of funds and and personnel, and as executives with decision-making powers. So it's a little different than what we would normally run to, Of course, there would have been injustice. But in in the Roman Empire, what we see is that slaves actually had rights, and those rights were protected by law. And even within the Jewish world, the the Jewish world held slaves even to a higher standard of respect. Slaves could own land, and and they could even own other slaves. In in many ways, this whole practice was was more like an employee-employee, Employer, sorry, employer-employee relationship. And of course, there would have been some severe oppression in the dark corners of all of that, but by and large, it was more of the general labor practice. Which we're going to see how this applies later. But with that said, there's still, there's still a sense of ownership when it came to slavery, right? Uh, to be a slave by simple definition is to be owned by someone else. To be a slave is not to be free. Although the system was more civil than we would normally think, still, a slave wasn't free just to leave his position. In fact, the only way that a slave could leave his position and be truly free is if he earned his way out of it or they they paid their way out of it. You see, there were many ways throughout the history of the church and history of Israel and and in society at that time, in the ancient days, to become enslaved. The most prominent way at this time uh, to be enslaved was through war. Right? As nations conquered nations, the winning nation would often enslave that conquered people. You know, we see this with, with the Jews and their past, right? Being being carried off to Babylon, right? Another common way to be enslaved was to be born into it. Your, your mother and your father are, are, are slaves and they get pregnant and you're born and you're born into slavery. Another way to become a slave would be to commit a crime and, and crime would often have the punishment of a hard life-long devotion to slavery. Another way was to be kidnapped and in fact at the start of 1 Timothy we see that that was condemned. You, you could be kidnapped and you could be sold into slavery, right? We, we remember this with the story of Joseph, right? being sold into slavery, into Egypt. And another way to enter slavery was through debt, and we see this in Scripture quite often. You would owe more than you could pay, and therefore you and your family could be taken in as slaves until the debt was paid. And then another big contributor to slavery was the problem with poverty. So as plagues and droughts and failing economies would often threaten your very life, many people would sell themselves into slavery for the security that slavery would provide. It was often safer at that time to be enslaved working for a family than it was to be free. At least if you would sell yourself into slavery in your poverty, In that position, you would be fed and you would have shelter. You would have the basic needs of life provided for you. Friends, the truth is, as long as we have had history, we have had slavery. And as much as there has been atrocities of slavery that must be condemned, right? that must be repented of, the slavery Paul's speaking about here, by and large, in Ephesus, was more of a civil, humane form of Slavery. Yes, there was ownership involved. But when it came down to the relationship, it was more of an employee-employer situation, but with a more strict sense. So, as Paul starts out, verse 1, by speaking about those who were under the yoke as bondservants, he's speaking directly to Christian bondservants. He's speaking directly to Christians who were slaves. And notice that his instruction for them, knowing of their yoke, knowing of their ownership, knowing of their slavery, is not for them to break out against their slavery, not to break out against their owners because of their newfound freedom in Christ. His instruction is not for them to rise up and revolt, no, his instruction for them is focused on how they are to relate to their master's. That the overarching instruction for them in light of their situation was to show honor instead of revolt. And this is consistent throughout the New Testament. You see, the slave system was so widespread, it was so embedded in the fabric of society and commerce that to, that to call for a mass exodus or a mass revolt uh, would have had huge implications. as about half of the population was was subject to some form of servanthood, as the function of Roman society was dependent on this system, and as the well-being even of those slaves was dependent upon it, to upend it in its form at that time would have caused greater harm than it was causing. Friends, the fact that social reform would come it would not come by force, but it would come by hearts being changed by the gospel. As you study church history and even throughout the world, you see that where the gospel goes, where the gospel advances and isn't embraced, there is a positive impact on society. You see, the church in the New Testament was not as concerned about social reform as they were about spiritual reform. They believed that transformation without came first from regeneration within. Even when Paul said that gaining freedom was good in 1 Corinthians 7.21, the preference at that time would be to remain in the servanthood and honor your master. 1 Corinthians 7.20-21. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity, right? If you can gain your freedom, that's a good thing. Go for it. Paul doesn't condemn that. But for the most part, he says, do not be concerned at this time. Meaning it wasn't a call for respect or a disrespect. It was not a call to revolt. And this is consistent throughout the rest of the New Testament as well. Ephesians 6, 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Colossians 3, 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Titus 2, 9. Bond servants are be to, sub, to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. 1 Peter two eighteen Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And so we see, be subject, obey, submit, and in our text, regard your master as worthy of all honor. So as slavery was a concern, what was more concerning, no doubt, what the Bible was teaching was that a Christian who was a slave needed to operate as a Christian first. And the reason he was bringing this up to Timothy, the reason Paul was bringing this up to Timothy and the church in Ephesus what that there was because there was confusion going on. And there would have even been conflict going on in this area in the church. Christian slaves were unsure as to how to operate in light of their new freedom in Christ. And so in that, Paul calls them, just like the widows and just like the church towards elders, to honor, to honor Masters, And in this first instant here, it is to honor unbelieving masters. Now with all that said, that's, a, that's a quite a bit of, of context. But how are we to apply this? How are we to respond in repentance and faith here this morning? Even more so than the widow text, this, this text seems so far from our context. What are we to do with it? And again, that's when it comes down to seeing the implications, seeing the principles that are here and applying it accordingly to our lives, right? As we don't have an institution or a culture of slavery as there was in the Roman society at that time where servants are to honor their masters, what do you think the closest connection we can make for us today? Well, I think the closest connection that we can make when it comes to honoring masters, because it really has a context of, uh, of somebody being subordinate to somebody else, is that we would apply this, the principle of this, to our employee-employer relationship. As, as any relationship where you are subject to serving under an authority, this is how we should be applying the principle in our life today. Like say it's... It's going to apply definitely to where you work and who you work for, but it could also be where you serve. You could be in the military. You could even be in school. You're serving and following your instructors as well. So as as slavery back then was closer to an indentured servanthood or employment, the instruction of honor here is most readily applied to our everyday work situations, serving situations. Where, where you and I are often the worker who works for an employer or a superior. So although our, our approach to work is a free choice on our part, friends, work is necessary. We can all agree on that. Work is essential to our livelihood. And when it comes to work, how we apply this text as Christians, again, is all about honor, which is what we see here in the text. And we see that that honor is directly tied to the gospel, So as I've said in the beginning, how you live out honor will either attract to or detract from the gospel. When Paul says here in verse 1, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, we see that he qualifies this command by saying the ultimate purpose is so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Friends, the ultimate concern here was the name of God and the message of the gospel. Our approach to work speaks volumes to our understanding of the gospel, to which we're going to apply in two ways here this morning. We're going to apply this in the form of two questions for ourselves. And question number one focuses on our approach to an unbelieving employer, an unbelieving superior where we see from verse one, we're gonna ask ourselves the question, is my work ethic proclaiming the power of the gospel? Is my work ethic proclaiming the power of the gospel? So as the name of God and the message of God are intrinsically testified by how you approach your work Again, we ask ourselves, is my work ethic proclaiming the power of the gospel? Friends, the gospel not only transforms us inwardly, right, but outwardly as well, right? It speaks into and informs our behavior. It's the the head-heart-hand analogy. So as, as your thinking is transformed, right, by the renewing of our mind our hearts are then transformed and we are given new desires, right? New passions are placed within us, godly passions. And then when our desires are then transformed into God's desires, that's a supernatural work within that works itself out through our actions. That's the, the pathway of transformation. So if you're truly a Christian who is growing by the the Word and the Spirit, friends, fruit is going to be produced. Change is going to be evident, and it is going to be seen by those who are around you. And so as we spend much of our days and and much of our lives at work, and as, as most of us here work for someone, the fruit that they see, the fruit that my boss sees, especially as an unbeliever, is a testimony to the gospel at work within me. And so when it comes to work and serving, the way that I approach work ought to be transformed as well, right? And so part of the problem Timothy was facing in Ephesus is that these servants who have now heard and believed the gospel, they needed direction. And in some ways, they needed correction, Right? They weren't to take their freedom in Christ as an excuse to dishonor their master. Therefore, we as well cannot take our freedom in Christ and take our jobs lightly. Because that would dishonor the employer. That would dishonor the superior, right? Your boss. Now, Paul says here to regard your master as worthy of all honor, right? Not regard him Based on my feelings towards him, not to regard them based on my job satisfaction, not based on the current project that I have been given. No, he calls us to regard them as worthy of all honor because of their position. Right, just as we read in 1 Peter Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Paul's basically, or, yeah, Peter's basically saying, even if your boss is an absolute jerk, be subject to him. Respect him. And if you were to ask your boss or your manager or a superior in your life how you could best honor them in their position, most are going to say, just do your job. Work diligently at the tasks that you have been given. Look after the responsibilities within your scope and do it in an excellent way. Friends, I truly believe that the Christian ought to be the hardest working employee on the job site. We should be. If your job is to build houses or to do carpentry work, you strive to be the hardest worker. You strive to do the finest work. You strive to do the best to produce the best product for your boss or for your client. right? Good enough isn't good enough. Good enough is not the standard. Maybe you're an oil field worker and, and maybe you like your job but you hate the paperwork. Maybe you hate the safety protocols and all of the practices, the safe operating practices. Do you choose to forgo the paperwork or the protocol and leave it all undone or do you follow through with that? Even more than that, do you go above and beyond what is required? Maybe you're a medical worker. You're just tired of the pace, especially in this season. Do you call in more personal days to get more time? Or do you lean in all the more? Do you honor your superiors? Now, as a Christian, this honor we know doesn't stop with our superiors, right? No, this this honor, yes, honors a superior... But it always looks beyond the superior, right? As the text says here, that we are to regard our own masters as worthy of all honor, we see at the very end, it is ultimately so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So first, let's start with the name of God here. That the name of God may not be reviled, right? Friends, as we step out into the world, we have to remember that we are ambassadors of God. We are his representatives. We represent his name on this planet. Right? We are his image bearers. So when the world looks to us or observes our behavior, especially with how we work, we need to ask ourselves... Is my approach to my job or my position reflecting God's character? In fact, we should be asking ourselves that all the time. What is my life representing? You know, there's there's an old saying that that sometimes Christians are so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly good. And sometimes, friends, in our immaturity, that can be somewhat true. Like, maybe you talk a good game, but You're known around the office for being that inefficient guy. Maybe you're just there, you're just putting in time, right? You're just just meeting just the, 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 the mediocre, the medium challenge. Maybe you're the one who is the one who is constantly complaining about the management. Or you're complaining about your job more than anybody else in your unit. And you're the one who's the Christian, Let's say that you're a mechanic who takes the shortcuts or a teacher who's just miserable to your students or you're just somebody who's just really lazy at your job. How does that reflect the name of Christ? I knew a guy who claimed to be a believer. He also claimed to be a jack of all trades. He was that kind of guy, right? You mention it, he's done it, right? But as I got to know the guy and observe his life, his ability to hold down a job was just not stellar. He's the kind of guy who could talk himself into any position, but when it came to actually getting the work done and sticking to the job, this guy had no follow-through. And every time that he lost a job, it was excuse after excuse. It was so-and-so's fault. He was framed. Let me ask you, what... What does that kind of work ethic say about the power of the gospel in his life? What does that say about the God that he represents? Like just imagine being his boss. Who may be thinking, if this is what a Christian is, are we attracting or detracting? You know, when I worked in the oil patch, I, I worked with some men who were churchgoers. Churchgoers. But when you get them out in the field, you'd never know that they attended church. The foul language and the underhanded business that would go on. What does that say about the God that they claim to know and worship? No friends, the gospel not only saves, the gospel transforms. And as we grow in our faith, our behavior and our attitudes ought to be changing as well. And specifically here with regard to our, our obligations to our superiors in our life. Friends, the Christian ought to stand out in the workforce. The Christian should be the best employee. Yeah. And that's not only because we're called to honor our bosses, but for the reason that we serve a higher authority. We represent God, and we represent a life-transforming message, right? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Friends, as we work for our employers, ultimately, we as Christians are working for God, right? Colossians 3, 22 to 23. Again, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service or people pleasers, right? no pretending, no slacking, right? You don't pick up the shovel when the boss is, only when the boss is around, right? No, we as Christians work, and we work hard. It says, but with sincerity of heart. Why? Because we fear the Lord, right? We honor the Lord above all. Whatever you do, and this is the key, we are to work heartily. Work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men. So, would your approach to your workplace or your position or even your school be defined as working heartily? That you're leaning in, that you're putting out? Friends, in the workplace, in your career, in your home, the Christian is not a slacker. We're not to be slothful in zeal. The Christian who truly fears God works for God. You set your sights on the Lord first and then you line up your job and your manager or your superior within those sights. I'm going to serve the Lord by serving this company, by serving this boss. And then with that, you go for all your worth. Right? Whatever you do, work heartily. How many people in the last week can say that they worked heartily? For the Lord at their job, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Friends, it's one thing to claim the name of Christ, it's another to represent Him. Your work ethic is a living message of transformation before your watching, unbelieving employer or superior. The way that you approach your job speaks volumes to the power of the gospel. How you work says, This guy is different. It says, something outside of this world is driving her. Why is she always the one who's in the door first? Why is he always the last one to leave? Why is she so great with our clients? Why is he so honest with his paperwork? Why do they do such quality work day after day? I wonder what her secret is. What's her secret? What's his secret? How we live out honor will either attract to or detract from the gospel. So the question is, what is my work ethic proclaiming about the power of the gospel? As this was the standard, Paul's standard for slaves in Ephesus, how much more ought this be the standard for us today? Does your employer does your manager, does your superior even know that you're a Christian? And do they see it being lived out in your faithful honor towards them? Do they see that you're different? Are you attracting them to something more? Or are you reviling the name of God? Are you detracting from the gospel? These are good questions for all of us to be asking ourselves in whatever context that we're facing this week. Now, as the gospel was saving both slaves and masters, there was another issue that was brewing within the Ephesian church. As both slaves and masters were finding themselves worshiping the same God and the same church, surrounded by the same gospel, this would have created some challenges. Which leads to the second question of application. Is my work ethic declaring the honor of the gospel? As the slaves would be learning the, the gospel alongside their masters, they would be learning of their equality in Christ, right? That at the, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level, right? That, that in the gospel, as Galatians three twenty eight says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That as well, for in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, or free. All were made to drink of one spirit, right? First Corinthians 12, 13. That the gospel shows no partiality, that the gospel humbles the lofty and raises up the lowly. That the last will be first. As these new believers would hear such good news on Sunday, there would have been confusion in their lives on Monday as they would have had to be serving their brother or sister in Christ they're worshiping with on Monday. I don't know if that was their real schedule or not. but And this would have been leading to disrespect. This would have been leading to authority issues, to which Paul addresses firmly here. He says in verse 2, Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, right? Just because you're equals in Christ doesn't mean your obligations are erased, Paul says. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved, right? And he says, teach and urge these things. As most of the slaves were to honor unbelievers, how much more were they to honor believing masters? The fact that you're now brothers and sisters in Christ doesn't give you the license to question or slack off or get special privileges. No, the gospel commands us here that we are to serve all the better our Christian brother for working for them. Work all the more faithfully. This is not an opportunity to pull the Christian privilege card. It's an opportunity to serve the Lord all the more as you serve your Christian master, right? With all the more zeal. According to Paul, To serve a Christian master was a blessing. It wasn't a curse. So friends, to work for a Christian brother or sister, to work for a Christian company is a blessing. To work for a Christian boss is an honor. And this is an honor that doesn't come around that often. But when it does, we are to embrace it. And even more than that, as the scriptures prescribe here, we are to serve all the better. Friends, when you open the very first pages of the Scripture, what you find is a working God. What you find is a God at work. You find a God who is expending himself, who is working eternally and tirelessly as he is speaking all things into perfect existence. And then as God creates mankind... He places Adam and Eve in the garden, right the pinnacle of his creation, and he, and he doesn't say to them, now, now go lie down and rest in the garden. Do nothing. What does he say? Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to do what? To work it and keep it. Take dominion over the earth. As God is by his very nature a worker, his image bearers, right? you and me, Before the fall are called to be workers who reflect his image in our work. We reflect his character in our work. And not just that you get the job done, but that you exhaust yourself. You you, you exhaust yourself in keeping and caring and reaping the fruit of his creations. You are industrious. You know, as in the very end, as heaven is really a return to the garden, heaven is not going to be one big slothful snooze fest. No, heaven, being in the presence of God, forever in the new heavens and the new earth, is going to involve work. As we were to serve the Lord in the garden, we are going to be serving the Lord in heaven. Revelation 22.3. No longer will there be anything accursed. Amen. No longer thorns and thistles, right? But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Right? It says his servants will worship him. It doesn't say his people. It says his servants. We are going to be serving God in heaven. We are going to be serving the Lord, and that service is worship. Right? We're not going to be lying around on clouds playing harps and eating Philadelphia cream cheese. We're going to be busy. And it's going to be glorious. We were created to work and to care for what God has created. In worship of him. And friends, sometimes we forget that work is good. Sometimes we forget that work is worship. Work as unto who? work as unto the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said, and I don't have this up here, he said all places are places of worship to a Christian. Wherever he is, he ought to be in a worshiping frame of mind. Right? Whoever you work for, especially if you work for a believer or even alongside believers, your approach to work speaks volumes about the honor of the gospel. Right? It's an honor to work. It's a privilege to work. It's a God-given obligation of worship. It's what our God does. Even as Jesus said when, when he was on this earth, he says, my father is always at his work to this every day, to this very day, and I too am working. So friends, does your work reflect your honor to God? Does your work declare to others that I live for his glory? I serve for his honor. I delight for his fame. Does your level of excellence and follow-through and submission to those over you reflect the honor of Christ? As slaves in Ephesus we're, were trying to meet this challenge, and even as they had to be corrected, Christian slaves were called even to honor their Christian masters. This was a challenge when it came to worshiping together. But it was the gospel that enabled them to honor one another. It was the gospel that would lead the slave to serve all the more for his master, even in light of his freedom and his, and his equality in Christ. It's a blessing, not a curse, to work for a fellow believer. So don't take your Christian brotherhood for granted. Just because you go to the same church or you believe the same gospel doesn't mean that you should expect special treatment. Just because you both profess Christ doesn't mean you get to pull back on the effort, right? No, Paul says exactly the opposite. He says, when this is the case, serve all the better. Just like Galatians 6.10 says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Brothers and sisters, as we are the household of God, no matter what our position and place, honor is the rule that rules the day. Honor widows who are truly widows. Honor your elders who rule well. Regard your masters of worthy of all honor. Serve believing masters all the more. And as Paul said, teach and urge these things. Friends, these very practical truths are intrinsically connected to the gospel. They're intrinsically connected to the good news of Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus Christ came as the servant for all, right? He is the one who came and washed the feet. He is the one who came as a servant, as a slave, who who proclaimed the power of the gospel perfectly for the sins of the world. He is the one who declared the honor of the gospel with the purest honor. He is the one who Matthew 20, 28 says, the Son of Man came not to serve but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's the one who Philippians 2, 8 says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross that is the standard that we follow. And when we believe in that, when we turn from our sin and trust in the one who came to serve, And save the loss. He saves us from our slavery. He saves us from our bondage. We no longer are a part of the domain of darkness. We are free. We are free to serve him. To give ultimate honor and glory to Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 6, 1-2 says, Regard your own masters as worthy of all honor. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. That is our prayer as we go out this week. That the name of God and the gospel will not be reviled. That when the world looks to us, whether they're unbelieving or believing, they see that we are different. They see that we are working for power that is outside of us. Working for authority that is over us. Eternal authority. And that in that they are attracted, not detracted, right? To the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. That is our prayer. The gospel is always connected. And as another challenge on top of that, if if your boss asks you, you know, what makes you different? You open your mouth. You share the good news. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, all to the glory of Jesus Christ. Is my work ethic proclaiming the power of the gospel? is my work ethic declaring the honor of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And as we aimed uh, to understand the context and to see what you have for us, we do uh, look at uh, the topic of slavery as difficult. But we also see that in this context, it wasn't what we normally run to as we reject history uh, uh, what happened in the past and and how slavery is atrocious, and and even in this sense of this ownership, that this is an anti-biblical understanding as far as owning somebody. We do look to this text by your spirit and we see the principles that we can pull out of it and how they apply to our everyday life, how they apply to how we work and how we honor, how we serve now we live in this world. And then more than that, how that is connected to the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that um, if, if any of us this morning are, are convicted over maybe our, our approach to work last week, maybe, uh, maybe in just in the last couple months, maybe we've pulled back on our effort. We do pray that by your spirit, the strength of your spirit, as we are convicted by your word, that as we are motivated by the gospel, And as we rely totally on your grace, would you compel us all the more to live for your glory and honor as we live out our lives in the workforce and wherever we're at, that we would honor and regard those worthy of honor over us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Follow us on social media to stay up to date on current events and information from Redemption Church, Calgary South. And don't forget, you are loved.